Well, thank you so much for coming this morning. Um, this is going to be one of my favorite chapels of the year already, I can tell. <laughs> Whoever said that Christianity was not fun needs to worship with a jazz band from time to time. I will just say that. Um, well, this morning, um, I felt that you and I had known each other long enough that I could reveal a little something about my past. And so I thought I would open up to you here right at the beginning by telling you that once upon a time, um, long ago, before I was a dean of chapel, back before I had children, I was a biker. It's the truth. Um, but before your imagination runs away with that, let me say I was not that kind of biker. Um, I was not the leather-wearing, engine-revving kind of biker. I was a cyclist. Um, I was the gear-shifting, spandex-wearing kind of biker, which is quite a different thing. So um, I thought I would give you a picture for proof, just so you didn't get the wrong image in your head. Um, now, I am not normally an athletic person. That has not been my gift over the years. But I accidentally fell in love with cycling. Um, I had a close friend, my college roommate actually, who had gone on a trip to participate on a century ride. Um, that was 100 miles in one day. And she wanted a support person to go with her, and so I went on this trip, and I drove her car, um, and I would drive out ahead of her team that was riding this 100 miles, and I would stop and wait for them, and she would catch up, and I would hold up signs cheering her on and um, have snacks and water ready for her. And I did that all day. I drove ahead and waited, and they caught up, and I drove ahead and waited, and they caught up. And by the end of the day, I was exhausted. Um, <laughs> I had driven 100 miles in a car, and I was exhausted. And I really just wanted to go home and go to bed, but she made me come to the after party that night, where the whole team in a large ballroom got together, and as I sat exhausted in a chair, they did the conga line around the ballroom. <laughs> These people who had ridden 100 miles that day. And it was that feeling, I think, not just of watching them ride, but of watching their joy after they rode, watching their camaraderie, their fellowship together, and of being kind of an outsider to that, that made me want to be part of something like that. And so before we had even left, before I really knew what I was doing, I had signed up for my own century. And then I thought, dear God, what have I done? Uh, we started training on a Saturday morning in Houston, Texas with a 12-mile ride. I almost collapsed after 12. And the goal was to add a little more each week and a little more each week until we had built up to 100 just in time for our own century. And not only did the rides get longer, they got hillier as we went. Because you see, the century we were preparing for was not in the flat plains of Texas. It was in what we refer to as the hill country. Uh, so if we wanted to be ready to ride on 100 miles of hills, we had to train on hills too. And let me just say that you don't really notice hills when you're in a car. <laughs> they might be scenery, they might be attractive, you, you, know, you, you feel sort of like a hero for gradually pushing your foot on an accelerator as you climb and gradually go down, but you really don't think about it very often. But on a bicycle, you think about hills. You notice the hills and you notice them a lot. You notice the hill up ahead of you and how terrifying it looks and how steep. You notice the hill that you're on and how it slows you down considerably because you're 
changing gears and pumping as hard as you can, but seemingly going nowhere. You notice that you are going so slow that you can literally count the petals on the flowers that you're passing beside the road, that an elderly couple out walking their dog on the sidewalk sometimes passes you as you are pumping yourself up these hills. And you debate sometimes whether to get off the bike and just walk up that hill. Uh, because you can clearly walk faster than you can ride at some points. But in cyclist terms, that's admitting defeat. So you don't get off the bike and walk. And then on the other side of the hill, you find a different kind of challenge. Uh, the out-of-control feeling of being this kind of speeding bullet unprotected by a car going up to 30 miles an hour on your way down. You don't notice hills in a car, but you notice the hills when you're cycling or walking or running. I know lots of you are joggers and runners. And, and those hills, they become your enemy, and then your friend, and then your enemy, and then your friend. And hills kind of take on a persona for you. They take on a life of their own. You notice them when you're the one climbing them. Uh, those pilgrims that climbed the steep path to Jerusalem each year were certainly intimately acquainted with hills. Faithful Jews would set out three times every year to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem for three very important feasts, for Passover, for Pentecost, for tabernacles. And if you lived in the low country, say you were near Jericho, you might travel from an elevation of 1,000 feet below sea level up to Jerusalem. And by up, I mean Jerusalem is the highest city in the region, 2,500 feet above sea level. So you were literally climbing your way to the temple, ascending, pushing your way forward. And that wasn't just a literal climb, it was a metaphor too, because on the way to Jerusalem, you were climbing upward spiritually towards the temple. You were acting out your devotion of this life, lived upward towards God. And as you walked, as you climbed, you sang. You sang these psalms. Every time you climbed, your whole family, your whole band of pilgrims that came in sang them together. Uh, we find them recorded together beginning with Psalm 120, and there are actually 15 of them. You sang out things like, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You sang, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Does that start to make a little sense now? They were climbing as they sang. That had a very literal up meaning as you walked and trudged and went slow enough to count the petals on the flowers that you were passing. You were going up to the temple because it meant becoming closer to God. You were climbing the only way you knew how. The road to Jerusalem was a road going upward. And I wonder now if the 12 disciples had that kind of impression of what their life with Jesus might look like. Because they knew they were headed for Jerusalem. I mean, where else is a Messiah going to go? They knew they were headed to that holy city. And I wondered if they thought that life with Jesus would be some kind of continuous climb. Some kind of upwardly mobile life of joy and singing and lots and lots of festivals. When I think about these 40 days of Lent that we started yesterday, the days that we have ahead of us to the cross... I think about Jesus, but I also think about the disciples. I feel a little sorry for them. Um, I wonder if they had a totally different impression 
of what elevation they would end at on Good Friday. Because maybe they thought that the way of Jesus was the way of success and of upwardly mobile moments of glorious parties overflowing with wine. That was the first miracle, right? Why shouldn't it keep going like that? Moments of contagious power and shared accolades. They, they wanted to be Jesus' entourage, not the witnesses to his execution. So when I think about Lent, I think about the disciples, and I think, because I'm from the South, bless their hearts. <laughs> they, just, they just didn't know. Jesus tried to warn them that it was not all going to be upwardly mobile from there. Um, the last of their walk with Jesus was on a path called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And, and more recently, our church has outlined that journey through the stations to the cross, and we'll unfold each of those stations here during Lent. Those stations, that's the way of suffering. It's anything but a celebration. It is a descent, a, a walk towards the valley of the shadow of death. And I really can't imagine being the disciples as Jesus walked those stations of the cross. I don't know what they were thinking, but I guarantee it wasn't what they were expecting. It's not what they asked for to watch their hero their savior and their friend walk the path of suffering. And that's why I'm so puzzled by Paul's words, Philippians chapter three, the ones that Ashley read for us. Part of it I get, I can read it almost like a checklist sometimes. I want to know Christ, check. To know the power of his resurrection, check. And to share in his sufferings, oh, I'm a little iffy on that one. Becoming like him, in his death. I can't quite put my check mark next to that one yet. I mean, come on, Paul, this is Philippians. This is the happy book. I mean, Philippians is the home of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the home of the peace that transcends all understanding, the home of, my God will supply all your needs, of he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Be anxious for nothing. The place where we read, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is pure and noble, think on those things. This is Philippians. Suffering? These are phrases in most of this book that you want to needlepoint and put up on your walls at home or at least post on your Instagram. Philippians is an up book with this steady upward climb and then out of the blue, I want to share in his sufferings? Who would ever want that? I want to become like him in his death. I don't really want that embroidered on a pillow at my house. I mean, were you just having an off day, Paul? What's going on here? Or did you know something that we didn't about the direction of our journey with Christ? Um, my first job as a pastor right out of seminary was at a church in Texas where they hired me and let me know that my appointment was to be the associate pastor of missions and evangelism. I thought that was a great title. I was really excited about missions and evangelism because seminary had not only strangely warmed my heart towards missions and evangelism, my heart was boiling for those things. And I couldn't wait to get out there and share in the work of a local church that wanted to do missions and evangelism. And when I got there, what I found was a 150-year-old church that thought missions was providing a fall festival as an alternate to Halloween and that evangelism was making the church look nice so when visitors came to us, they would have a good impression. 
Those are important things. But we had this evangelism committee that tried to define evangelism over and over again. And we met monthly to talk about what evangelism was and how we would do it. And talking about evangelism involved a lot of instructions about what to do when they came to us. Um, evangelism was the parking spaces that we saved in the parking lot for the visitors. Um, evangelism was the signs directing the newcomers to the sanctuary and to our help desk that displayed glossy brochures about our ministries. Evangelism was what we talked to our guests about when they came to church, our awesome children's ministry, the discount that members could get if they had a wedding in the sanctuary. Our church softball league memberships had its privileges. But I'll tell you what we did not talk about. We did not talk about suffering. That was not evangelism. Suffering is not attractional. It is not a recruitment tool. Except there was this problem that when we tried to define evangelism, we found that the church didn't exist to recruit members. That we existed to form disciples whose lives are shaped like Christ. And that inevitably, when we looked at a life shaped by, like Christ, you couldn't avoid the suffering in it. That Christ's life, the whole thing, not just the last week, is shaped like sacrifice and suffering and self-giving. And that was a struggle for us. I don't think we ever really resolved it. In my first season in that church of Lent, I was asked to lead the Lenten Bible study. And in our first session together, we um, began looking at the cross and what was happening there so we could get our hearts ready as we traveled through Lent. Two or three weeks into our meetings, we began to look at that verse in Philippians chapter 3. The one that says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then where I would put a period and turn a page goes on to say and share in the fellowship of his sufferings and be like him in his death. And we were puzzling over this verse together because it made no sense then. Why would we want, why would we ask to be like Jesus in his sufferings? I really, I wanted to emulate his kindness, his faithfulness, his prayer life. I was the pastor in this group, and I really didn't know what to tell people about asking Jesus for suffering. And there was a, a woman in our group. Her name was Maureen. She, she couldn't come every week. She, um, she was older, and the reason she didn't attend every week is that her husband, Bobby, um, was bedridden. He had had a stroke in the recent past, and some weeks she could find someone to stay at her house and care for him so she could come to our Lenten Bible study, and some weeks she had to stay home and care for him. And I didn't know Maureen and Bobby before the stroke, but people told me stories of just what a powerhouse couple they were in the church, how they served, how he led mission trips, how he climbed on people's roofs to patch them for them. He had been a, a really strong and capable member of that church, a real servant. And so this stroke had really changed the shape of both of their lives. It had been very hard on both of them. And Maureen was pretty quiet in the group when she was there. But when we began to talk about Philippians 3, when we began to ask why we would want to share in Jesus' suffering, Maureen started to talk. She started to talk about Bobby, her husband. She said, you know, Bobby and I, we were high school sweethearts. 
I barely remember a time when he wasn't part of my life. We've had four kids together, lots of grandkids. We, we love each other deeply. But somehow, she said, somehow since the stroke, we've had to rely on each other more than ever and in different ways. We've, we've had to be vulnerable with each other. We've had to suffer through this. And it's made us love and appreciate each other in a deeper way. I think I love him today more than I ever did. I think, and then she paused for a long time. I could tell she didn't know if it was okay to say this out loud. She said, I think if I had to choose between life with a stroke and life without the stroke, I would choose the stroke. And there was dead silence in that room. We did not know what to say to her. Because groups like this, we exist to make people feel better. We all, we all wanted to say, oh, no, no. Um, people, I could tell they wanted, they wanted to shut down this talk about the suffering life and what we could glean from it. We all sat there and looked at her stunned. And I have never heard anyone say anything like that in the moment. Sometimes we look back years after our suffering, we recognize this. But she knew it in the moment. I wasn't sure if I understood her. I'm not really even sure now that I understand. And that was the most Maureen ever talked in our group. And then she got quiet again. Uh, but I could tell that she meant it and that I, I knew that I didn't know something that Maureen and Bobby knew, something deeper about Jesus that I could ever even hope to grasp. We wouldn't dare say the word suffering to the visitors that came into our church. Everything about that church was supposed to look bright and freshly painted and with signs directing people to this upwardly mobile place where they would gain fellowship and friends and discounts on their weddings. Um, but in that little group, that tiny group of pilgrims, we learned something about suffering, how to identify with Christ, how to walk with him. We were learning that, um, as 1 Peter 2 says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so you should follow in his steps. And, and this is one of the confusing things about Lent for me. I'm trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus here. I'm trying to walk the path that he walked to identify with him and his sufferings, to follow in his steps. Lent seems to me to be about identifying with the walk of Jesus. But what we read here is that Jesus is also identifying with us, that he came to experience every possible stage of the human experience, that he didn't limit himself to just the happy ones. He didn't park in the visitor's parking space. He came to walk among us in our awful experiences too, not just the mildly uncomfortable ones. He didn't stop at going all the way to the worst of the human experience for us. So are we identifying with him or is he identifying with us? I am confused. Um, Steve Siemens puts it this way in the book, Wounds That Heal. He says, knowing that God suffers with us doesn't make our pain disappear or explain this enigma of suffering, but it does enable us to keep trusting God and believing in his goodness, even in the midst of the inexplicable. We may not be able to trace God's hand in what has happened, 
but we can still trust God's heart. God came in the flesh in every imaginable and possible way, even to the deepest kind of suffering and death that we can name, so that you and I can never act out our teenage impulse that comes up from time to time with God, that we want to slam the door in his face and yell at him, you just don't understand. The cross stops us from saying those words to God, because he does. During Lent, we try to identify with Jesus and his sufferings, but he's already identified with ours. He has walked every possible part of this path, enough to identify deeply with us. And as I'm puzzling over this mystery, I love what Eugene Peterson says about it. He says, the way we come to God is the same way that God comes to us. God comes to us in Jesus. We come to God in Jesus. It's the same way, the Jesus way. God comes to us in Jesus speaking words of salvation, healing our infirmities, promising the Holy Spirit, teaching us how to live in the kingdom of God. It is in and through this same Jesus that we pray to and believe, hear and obey, love and praise God. Jesus is the way God comes to us. Jesus is the way we come to God. The way up and the way down is the same way. The way up and the way down is the same way. Those are both confusing and clarifying words for me. It makes no sense, and it makes perfect sense. Which path are we on? Is it uh, the journey of joy or the way of suffering? Yes. Um, What are we? Are we pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem? Are we walking with Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain? Yes. It it makes no sense, and yet it makes perfect sense in this penitential and solemn season of Lent to welcome the joy of a jazz ensemble in worship. Yes. On our journey with Christ, the way down is the way up, and we sometimes don't even know which one we're on. The hardest points on this journey may look like a descent, but they may be the points that bring us close to God. How many of you thought that saying yes to ministry would be a whole lot like a beautiful life of climbing steadily upward? How many of you have found a few more downs than ups as you begin this walk to fulfill your calling? A lot more valleys than mountaintops. Which one brings you closer to God? You probably don't even know yet. The disciples thought that they were on the upward journey of joy, and they found themselves stuck on the Via Dolorosa without an off-ramp. But where would we be now with that, that final journey to the cross? The way down for us has been the way up. And in the same way, that the hills that um, we trained on, our cycling team and our long training rides, when we turned our journey around, because we had to at some point ride back to our cars on those, all of the inclines were now declines. And all of the declines now inclines. All the hills that had challenged us were now the ones that we sailed down. And all of the easy approaches were now the struggles going back. The way down was the way up. We spent weeks and weeks training on hills. And when the week of our 100-mile century ride came, and I finally saw the course we were riding on, I was actually grateful for all the pain we had put ourselves through, because there were a lot of terrible hills on that course. I counted a lot of flower petals. 
and Paul's language about straining forward and pressing on made more sense to me than it ever had. And finally, at mile 88 and a half, I met a hill that I could not tackle. It was close to 100 degrees outside. I was dehydrated. I had let my electrolyte levels get too low. My energy was gone, and I got off the bike and sat down beside the road. And I did not get up again. I missed my goal by 11 and a half miles. Somebody drove me to the meeting point where we were all gathering about a mile before the finish line so that the team could ride in together. And I, I sat and waited as our teammates gathered, the fast ones first, the medium ones next, the people I had been riding with last. And as I was sitting there waiting for the team, I really got for the first time to spend some time talking to our honorary teammate whose name was Jack and his family. Um, this ride was to benefit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and so our team was assigned Jack as an honorary teammate. Um, Jack was a five-year-old leukemia survivor, and our team's motivation to ride was not about physical fitness, it was about him. It was about his story of how the funding for research in that area had literally saved his life, and we were out to ride to save more. And so I sat down on the asphalt in this shaded parking lot, and I talked to Jack's dad, and I watched him play. And I heard firsthand the story of his diagnosis at age two, of his chemo treatments, of his bone marrow transplant. Um, I heard about how several times they thought they were going to lose Jack, but how he had been rescued again and again. And as I watched him play, just like any other five-year-old, I listened to his dad talk. And he was both talking through tears, and his eyes were filled with joy as he watched his son. I could tell that those hills had been both awful and exhilarating for them. I thought about what a journey of suffering had been like for that whole family and possibly about how they would be receptive to the church as the open arms of the kingdom of God, not because we save them a parking space, but because we offered them a savior who had suffered. That maybe suffering is attractional, and maybe it looks a lot to us like something that is so welcoming, that we're so grateful for when we see it in Jesus. Um, I knew that Jack's suffering and his family's suffering was something I couldn't fathom, but that Jesus could, and that he could wrap his arms around them in a different way. This was the beauty of this cycling team as we all rode in and gathered around Jack. When we trained, when we were pedaling uphill, um, we were pedaling for Jack and his family. We were riding with them in a way. We were working to save others like him. And in the process, we were building community with each other. We were disciplining and pushing ourselves. We were growing stronger, and we were growing together. And that combination of things sounded pretty familiar to me. Mission, discipline, fellowship. I'm pretty sure the church invented it and that we need to reclaim it, not just for cycling teams. We were all really one family by the end of that day, having ridden 100 miles together, or some of us, 89 and a half. Um, I have to admit, I was surprised when they told me I would get to ride across the finish line, even though I didn't deserve it. That it wasn't about what I had accomplished that day, 
that when the team gathered at the end of the day, we were all going to cross the finish line together, and we were going to do it with Jack leading us. Jack had learned to ride without training wheels just for this ride. He had gotten off his training wheels a few weeks before, and he was so proud as he and his dad rode that last mile, very slowly, in front of our whole team, who was glad to go slowly at that point. We rode in with Jack at the head of the pack, and his dad carrying a Texas flag, because that's who we are. <laughs> and I don't pretend that riding hills in the hot sun compares with what that family had been through when their child was sick and they suffered the unimaginable, but I know that Jack's family felt that we were riding with them, that we were on that ride together. This is Lent. This is the way of suffering and the journey of joy. The way down is the way up. Remembering again that Jesus came to ride our path both uphill and downhill, and that we have a chance again to travel it with him on the way up to the city of God, singing like pilgrims, sometimes dragging a cross, but always knowing that it's possible only by grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the sharing of your sufferings. We want to become like you in your death, as if somehow we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we don't pretend to have already obtained it or to already have reached the goal, but we press on, Lord, to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Lord, walk with us, guide us, pull us up the hills, show us again the way, the truth, the life. Amen.